National media continues to exaggerate and promote misleading negative headlines designed to diminish the rule of law and those whose job it is to enforce it. Remember, the only people who want to defund the police and dismantle these agencies are the criminals. And don't forget to thank a cop. Now, let's start the show. Good morning, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. Our guests today are Hal Kempfer, who's with Global Risk Intelligence Planning, and he's going to tell us what we should be doing for New Year's Eve. And we have Bill Mormon, who is the appeals attorney for Derek Chauvin. We're going to start with Hal real quick. Hal, tell us what's going on and, and what are the threats we're facing? Well, Sherry, this is a little twist from what I normally talk about, but uh, uh, obviously this year, this particular New Year's is, uh, is a time of, of heightened concerns because of, uh, well, a number of wars going on, but particularly because of the Israel-Hamas war and the number of different uh, extremist groups, uh, many backed by Iran, which have been uh, joining in in this, uh, in this conflict. Here in the U.S., the concern is that there could be uh, terrorist groups that try to exploit um, uh, this conflict overall uh, that could be motivated to do some sort of strike. And, and with that, you're talking about mass violence targets where they're going to look where there's mass gatherings. And, of course, New Year's is the epitome of mass gatherings because that's when people come together to celebrate. And, of course, you know, the most famous things, you know, New York, uh, Times Square, phenomenal amount of security going on in Times Square, you know, uniform, plain clothes, uh, electronic, you know, video, everything down there, uh, pushing the perimeter out further this year. Because you may recall last year they had an attack on three NYPD officers with That's a right. uh, machete-willing man. Uh, but also all the concerns, everything you could take from post-9-11, and then, of course, uh, close uh, here in the West, the biggest celebration or the biggest uh, New Year's event is uh, 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 is a strip in uh, in, in, Las, in Vegas. Las Vegas, and a phenomenal amount of security that goes on there with uniform, plain clothes, also a ton of private security that is employed across the board. And what what a lot of people don't realize is uh, there's this very extensive. Well, everybody knows if you watch the Ocean's Eleven series that there's lots of cameras in, uh, in Las Vegas, but but actually there's a uh, a camera system in Las Vegas, very advanced, with a, a central node that monitors it, where they're able to uh, basically pick up on things through a variety of different means and uh, reallocate forces accordingly to uh, to try and mitigate whatever's happening, which is a big deal with New Year's because of the the challenge of flash mobs but also the, the challenge of uh, if someone's doing something nefarious. So a lot of precautions being taken out there really does does uh, emphasize that point. If you see something, say something Yes, because uh, of these concerns across the board. Absolutely. And, that yeah. you know, you don't have to be in Las Vegas, New York, or L.A. to be really aware of your surroundings. Any gathering, be, yeah. be, be really careful this year. Absolutely. And uh, and just use, use common sense uh, precautions. Uh, you know, the other thing is with safety, uh, if you think you're going to call an Uber uh, after midnight or something, uh, you really need to plan your 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 movement uh, uh, a lot better because, you know, this is this is a night where all the uh, all the modes of uh, transportation are being used. Certainly don't drink or drive or drink and drive. But but 
think about how you're, you know, make plans for uh, getting home. And uh, that's a really good safety precaution because, you know, we, we think terrorism, but we forget traffic. Yes. And, uh, and uh, so it's really good idea to have a, a designated driver or have a driver that's going to make sure they're going to show up at a certain time to pick you up, to take you home. And of course, just use all the common precautions, you know, uh, necessary, but just be alert. Be Be very alert. alert. Something suspicious. Yeah. Call it in. Absolutely. Well, you have a safe new year too. You, what do you have planned? Staying home. I'm staying home. Uh, We're (laughs) we're staying home. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) That's my plan. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. You have a great weekend and thank you for, for bringing us up to date on what's going on with uh, all these threats we're receiving. Okay, Sherry. Well, happy new year to you. You too. Take care. Okay, our next guest is Bill Mormon, who is the appeals attorney for Derek Chauvin. I don't think I even need to introduce him. <laughs> he's he's just amazing man who has taken this on. And let's talk about the Sixth Amendment. Hi, Sherry. Thank you for having me this morning. Can you hear me okay? I, I can hear you. You sound like you're in a tunnel. Okay, well, I will try to do something about that. that better much better perfect um good morning good morning (laughs) happy holiday yeah happy holidays now since the last time we talked um as everybody now knows uh the u.s supreme court denied uh derrick's uh petition to review the decision by the minnesota trial court not to move venue in the case which obviously we were extremely disappointed in um, you stated you wanted to talk about the Sixth Amendment, which guarantees to every citizen a right to a fair trial, and the where that usually comes up in uh, in criminal cases is that there's been a significant amount of pretrial publicity, which Derek's trial probably had more pretrial publicity than any trial in the history uh, of the world. And then on top of it, of course, you had the riots in Minneapolis and all the physical pressure on the courthouse. Um, we were very surprised that the uh, United States Supreme Court decided not to take the case. Uh, they, uh, When they made that decision, they didn't give any reasons for it. They just denied our petition, which is what they usually do with most uh, petitions for review. Um, and so I don't know why they denied it. There could be a whole host of reasons. Uh, one of which, obviously, is the case itself is extremely uh, explosive in the country, and the court may not have wanted to touch it. And the media made it that way. Uh, They did. Yeah, absolutely. Um, You know what's scary about this? If this sets a standard, this is not cool. This is, you know, clearly he didn't have a fair trial. And no, he, it, it, yeah, he didn't, and it is scary. Um, you know, there's a significant amount of lawfare that's occurring in the in this country right now, uh, where the courts are being mobilized for political purposes. And Derek's case, you can argue, and I think it's accurate to argue, uh, fits into that category. Um, you have him tried uh, in a city that rioted based on what happened. 
And then during the trial, the, the courthouse is basically uh, protected like a fortress. And then before the case even went to the jury, uh, the National Guard was deployed throughout the city. You know, oddly enough, the National Guard was not deployed in the city until the third day of riding, which is weird. But during the the trial, the National Guard was deployed, and there were no riots in Minneapolis uh, after the verdict. Quite frankly, the city celebrated, So, which indicates, of course, that the reason for the deployment of the troops was in the event the jury acquitted Derek. Exactly. So it's a horrible, yeah, it's a horrible standard. And it's a horrible standard generally, but it becomes a really horrible standard for police officers. You know what, the thing that, one of the things, there are so many things on this article that, that you sent to me that, that hit me, but one of them was the state objected, arguing that there was no evidence that Shaven was trained by that technique. And every state, I know Arizona, they have uh, Arizona Post, Peace Officer Standards and Training. They know what class, how long it was, who the instructor was, who attended, where it was held. They know everything. Is Minnesota that sloppy with their training that they can't tell you if this man was trained? Um, apparently so. Uh, I was not Derek's counsel at trial. Um, the reason, um, so you're, what you're getting at is one of the, in, in my mind, one of the most controversial factual issues in the case, which is that the uh, technique that Derek and the other officers used to restrain George Floyd is called the maximal restraint technique, or MRT. Right. And there's a whole section in the Minneapolis uh, Police Officers Training Manual on using MRT. And in fact, there's a photograph in the manual which shows officers restraining, you know, not not a suspect, but a you know, a dummy in a in a classroom type setting, but restraining that person in the same manner that George Floyd was restrained. And that photograph was not admitted into evidence because uh, the trial judge found that Derek couldn't prove that he saw the training. Uh, if you don't mind, I I would like to share with your listeners why. That ruling was ridiculous. Sure. If that is okay? okay. Yes. So, so uh, one of the things that scares the heck out of police officers is when they're charged in these situations, uh, it, it, it isn't a situation where you're trying to prove the OJ case. You know, did he do it? We, we generally all know what happened. Officers all have body cams now, so you, you know what happened. The problem for the officers is that they're going to be convicted, if they're convicted, on two pieces of expert testimony. One, did they use a reasonable degree of force? And two, if they didn't use a reasonable degree of force, was that unreasonable degree of force a substantial cause of death? With regard to the reasonable degree of force, what the court found with Derek was it couldn't introduce this exhibit uh, because he hadn't seen the training. That's irrelevant whether Derek saw the training. I want to be really clear on this with your audience. You can have a police officer who has received no training at all on anything. And if that officer in arresting a suspect does the proper techniques in arresting the suspect and something happens to the suspect, 
if the state prosecutes, the state can't argue, well, the uh, police officer defendant can't prove that he used a reasonable degree of force because he wasn't trained. It doesn't matter whether he's trained. The issue is whether he's using a reasonable uh, degree of force. That That's the issue. It's an objective standard. It doesn't matter whether Derek knew about the technique or not. He did, uh, but it didn't matter. So the, the judge's ruling on that issue to me was uh, really unsubstantiated. It didn't have a basis in law. So how do you fix it? Are, are the options closed or do you have other options? Um, the options right now with directly handling his conviction are closed. Wow. The appeals are done. Yeah. And um, I uh, spoke briefly with, uh, with Derek the day the decision came down from the U.S. Supreme Court, and I was out of town at the time and told him that, you know, when I got back from out of town, we would talk again. Unfortunately, uh, Derek was assaulted uh, before, I, before I got back. I mean, it was like, three days later after we, uh, after we spoke that the assault happened at the prison in Arizona. So, and I have not talked to him since. In fact, the uh, prison uh, officials, I've, I've sent them emails, and they haven't responded to him. So I, I have not been in touch with Derek, and the prison also has not reached out to his mother about this. Um, his mother has been in touch with Derek. Derek's been able to make uh, phone calls to her, um, but the prison has not reached out to even her to let her know, you know, how Derek's doing and what the exact nature of his medical condition is. Is that standard? That just sounds so bizarre that the prison would not notify the family of something happening before they blab it to the press. You know, we don't know. We're looking into it. You know, that's, that's what I can tell you. We haven't represented somebody that's been in prison and been assaulted and no information. We've never seen this happen before. Our law firm is actually handling a case right now for an individual that died in custody in a prison in Minnesota. Um, but the issue of the prison contacting family members and the like wasn't uh, an issue in that case. So we just we just haven't handled it. And I haven't, as I said, the, the prison hasn't called me back. Uh, to discuss this with me, Derek has an individual who's assigned to uh, who's assigned to him that I've been in communication with in the past, and they just haven't gotten back to me. That's just mind blowing. I'm sorry that <laughs> I, you know, I I've always thought I've I've been to the prison, not that one. I've been to the one across the street, and there's communication. You're able to talk to these people when you have to go in there and do things. You know get paperwork signed or whatever that's right crazy and it, right and it's really troubling in my mind because I'm, I'm his lawyer you know i uh there's legal things i need to talk to him about and uh there's been no effort to set up a phone call or anything so i you know at some point uh, we're gonna have to ramp things up in that regard because uh this, I have to be able to talk to him. I, you know, I, I have rights to talk to his. Yeah, of course, he has rights to talk to his attorney. I, it just boggles my mind the way that was handled. The whole mess of it, and the person who who did that, they 
the whole time, and I was watching the news the whole time that they were talking about, and this was just a couple of days ago, about um, the stabbing. They never put the person's photo up there who did the stabbing. They, they put Derek's face up there and, you know, different versions of, you know, photographs of him. And I thought, you know, why aren't you showing the bad guy? Right. And, you know, here we are. So Yeah, and my understanding is the bad guy's been charged. Yes. Um, and what I think is going to be interesting in that case is, is whether uh, it ever goes to trial. Um, because if it goes to trial, then there's going to be uh, a public hearing of the, the evidence in the case. And, for instance, what the security was like for Derek and what the cameras showed and, and all of that stuff. And I, I highly suspect that this there's not going to be a trial in this case. It'll get plea bargained out and um, all that information about what happened and why this occurred, given uh, you know, given Derek's identity as a high-profile prisoner, none of that evidence is going to come out. We talked about it um, the week after it happened, and I was talking to DEA, and he, they said that the or a retired DEA agent, and he said that the person who did this was just trying to make a name for himself within the prison and become some kind of a local celebrity so he'd have some technically street creds because he's never getting out of prison anyway um yeah we've heard rumors like that and um but yeah you don't know i mean it is um interesting that apparently this individual is an fbi informant yeah you know, i heard what, that what, too. what 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 do you spin out from that who knows? But it's interesting that this is an FBI informant. Um, and to the extent, what what I don't understand is why the prison would have Derek in any in any kind of general population with individuals who who would think that they could earn uh, street cred in the prison by assaulting him. I mean, he he supposedly this facility. Uh, was populated with individuals who would not have uh, that incentive to attack him. So I, I, you know, I I can't offer your listeners today any factual insights into what happened. But what what happened was obviously horrific, and there was obviously a massive failure here. You had a high profile prisoner, and the prison staff. Um, didn't protect him sufficiently, knowing that he could possibly be at risk. You know, at 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 some point, um, there's going to be a digging into of what happened here. Well, I hope they make those results public because they certainly have, you know, taken the taken the media and used them to convict somebody in a very not nice way i'm just like i'm still floored with this case and that it happened in the way it happened yeah one of the things that also really uh i know bothers derek's mother and 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 i is uh his mother's contacted uh 
the Bureau of Prisons numerous times, and 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 she's been able to reach um, people in Washington and wanting to get information, obviously, on Derek, and they they will tell her absolutely nothing. And their justification is that there are privacy concerns with Derek, that it, it would be illegal for anybody in the Bureau of Prisons or involved in the government to reveal any, any information about Derek uh, publicly. And what drives me nuts with that explanation is, well, I'm assuming then that the FBI is doing a massive investigation at that at that prison facility as to who leaked the information about Derek's assault and all the other information out to the media and to Minnesota Attorney General Keith Ellison. Who did that? I mean, they're telling us it's a crime to tell anybody that information, and yet it gets it gets it gets leaked to the news media. Yeah, and you know, and to Attorney General Ellison, you know, he gets informed about what happened. You know, but but his mother doesn't. His, his mother and his lawyer, they don't. <laughs> you know, they don't talk to us. They have, so, there's something really uh, yeah. wrong with this picture. Yeah, yeah, horribly wrong. Absolutely. It seems like after the George Floyd thing, and, you know, I think people really don't understand or maybe have lost sight of how all that went down to begin with. You know, George Floyd was no saint. He started, or at least the first time he was being held accountable for his criminal career was when he was 15. That's when he was first caught. And he never changed. He was a drug-addicted career criminal all his life. And a big guy. He was huge. And it took more than just, you know, I've I've been around people who are on drugs, and they seem to have this superpower, and it takes a lot of people to keep them from hurting themselves. And, you know, you like you said before, Derek weighed, what, 150 pounds at most? 45 <laughs> 145. And, you yeah. know, you're dealing with with somebody, he, how what was he, 6'6"? Six, six? Yeah, I believe he was about 6'6 six, six and 250, if not more than that. I mean, he was, it, George Floyd was a very big man. Big and guy. so, yeah, if you have somebody of, of his stature who's resisting arrest and has drugs in their system, uh, it will usually take more than one officer to be able to get handcuffs on them. Well, George Floyd had handcuffs on him, but then also get him into the back seat of a squad car, which it, is all the officers were doing. <laughs> so, and they were you know. very polite about it. You know, please get in the car. Yeah. And he was, you know, not claustrophobic in his car, but he's claustrophobic in a squad car. He's like, I'm saying I'm claustrophobic. Well, you were in your car. (laughs) Right. Right. Um, Yeah, the the whole, um, you know, to the extent you you have any young listeners uh, uh, on this show, I will uh, will tell them what I've told my kids and tell others. Uh, You know, when you're subject to arrest or anything, or you have interactions with a police officer, there's only one place you argue with a cop, and that's in front of a judge, period. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yep. You, absolutely. You don't argue with them on the street. They arrest you. 
You you turn around if they want to slap cuffs on you, let them slap cuffs on, cuffs on you. You let them take you in. And quite frankly, as a lawyer, I would tell you know if they were potential clients of mine, I would tell them just to shut up. Yeah. You know, if the police say you're <laughs> under arrest for something, fine, you're under arrest. You're not. You know, the the the, the cop is not your jury and not your judge. There's no reason to argue with the police officer once they've made a decision to arrest you. At that point, you just do what they tell you to do and get booked into the jail and, and you get out of bail or they'll release you that night or whatever, but you don't fight with them. It's, it, that's just going to lead to bad outcomes for you. Really bad outcomes, and I want to talk more about that. We've, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be back in a few. and Pima Federal Credit Union are hosting a free educational event on the topics of internet scams and how AI can impact your future. Join us at 10 a.m. on Saturday, January 6th at Pima Federal, located at 6850 North Oracle Road in Tucson. For more information and to sign up, visit lawmatters1030.org. Law Matters Live Show works hard at keeping you informed on current issues from all law enforcement agencies including any changes in both the tax and mortgage loan rules. I host the show as a volunteer. My real job is working for a mortgage broker with over 20 resources in residential, commercial, jumbo, as well as a reverse mortgage company whose new rule is offering tax-free money to those 55 and older, qualifying for up to $4 million. If you want to learn more, call me after the show at 520-310-9900. Southern Arizona Against Slavery is hosting its first annual Human Trafficking Awareness Walk January 20th at Reed Park. This free event is open to community members of all ages, and you may register on our website, sastucson.com. That's S-A-A-S-Tucson.com. In addition to the walk, you'll find a silent auction, food trucks, jumping castles, and a variety of ways to donate to efforts directly combating human trafficking in our community. We hope to see you there. Law Matters and Pima Federal Credit Union are hosting a free educational event on the topics of internet scams and how AI can impact your future. Join us at 10 a.m. on Saturday, January 6th at Pima Federal, located at 6850 North Oracle Road in Tucson. For more information and to sign up, visit lawmatters1030.org. Thanks for staying with us. Our guest today is Bill Mormon, who is the appeals attorney for Derek Chauvin. And I don't know about you, but we've been, ever since that happened, actually since Michael Brown and, and Ferguson, every time I see something that's sensationalized in the news, it's always a criminal who is being combative when trying to be arrested and bad things happen. And I don't know. Have I know you're a busy man? You probably don't watch the news like I do. But has this come to your you know thought process? You're like, oh, all these bad people are acting bad, and now bad things happen to them. Uh, Sherry, I'm sorry. Could you repeat that? We're talking about the the people. It seems to be a mantra where you know being combative when you're being arrested is is become a thing. And, 
you know, people say, get off my neck or I can't breathe when, you know, they're handing them their driver's license, I can't breathe. And it just seems like bad actors are continuing to just be bad and combative and arguing and fighting with law enforcement when the process of being arrested and then bad things happen. Yeah, and, and and that narrative is being driven by politicians, uh, which is horrible. Um, this has been going on since the Obama administration. I mean, you remember when the uh, um, those police officers were shot in Dallas, and uh, the response from the Biden administration or from the Obama administration to that was was weak at best. Um, and, you know, the, the message that we talked about before the break is the message that uh, politicians and everybody should be delivering to our citizens. You don't fight with police officers, period. You just don't. We have a, we have a court system. And if you don't believe you should have been arrested or charged with a crime or whatever, you can deal with it there, but you don't deal with it on the street. It's going to lead to bad outcomes. Yeah, and there's been quite a few bad outcomes because of, I think it's, it's, I don't know if it's their training or if that's the way they were raised, but, you know, you don't argue with law enforcement. You argue in front of a judge and, you know, just protect yourself. Whether you're a criminal or you're innocent, protect yourself. And, you know, bad things are going to happen if you don't. You don't uh, cooperate. And that's another thing, you know, you're talking about the state of Minnesota. You told me before that they don't issue Narcan to their first responders. No, no, they they don't issue them to police officers anymore because they didn't want police officers to be administering medication to people. And that was a message that was driven again by politicians that they, I'm the only explanation I can think of is that they don't like police officers, so they didn't want police to be able to administer Narcan. And as a result of that, there have been people that have died. Yes. Uh, Like George Floyd. Right. You know, I think Narcan, had they had that, Narcan probably would have helped. Yeah, it, 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 um, you know, the extent that, that, um, George Floyd was suffering at the time from the methamphetamine and, and fentanyl that was in his system. Yeah, it may have helped. That may have contributed to his agitation. In fact, when I discussed earlier that photograph that was in the Minneapolis Police Training Manual, it's in a section of the manual on what's called excited delirium, uh, which is when you have a suspect who is under the influence of drugs and so heavily under the influence that they basically are in delirium and they become very difficult to handle at that point because they're not rational. And as you said, they also can start exhibiting superhuman strength, which which makes it even more difficult to take them into custody. It does. And I, I remember being involved in an incident where it took seven of us, seven of us, to hold somebody down so they they were damaging property but so they wouldn't hurt themselves further <laughs> you know and that yeah, was before no. narcan or anything and it was some big guys trying to hold this guy down and he wasn't a big guy <laughs> he's just like superpower yeah right 
um, you know, one, one other thing that's interesting with this today, too, is I, I, I think part of the narrative that's out there is that every police department in the country is, you know, some rural police department in uh, the bowels of Mississippi in the 1950s. And that, you know, they're going to take black suspects down in the basement of the jail and beat them up or kill them there or something. Um, that that doesn't happen anymore. I, I haven't heard any stories of that happening generally in the country, but particularly in inner city urban areas. You know, most uh, large cities in the United States are run by uh, Democratic administrations uh, that have uh, significant, significant progressive elements in in those administrations that are usually kind of anti-police, and as a result of that, they're watching their police uh, police officers like a hawk. So the idea that something bad is going to happen to you if you're taken into custody by a large city police department in America today is absurd. They've got body cams on them. If anything happens to you in custody, there's going to be a massive investigation of the police department. All the police officers know that. So I think the risk of any bad outcome happening to somebody today who's being arrested in an urban area is almost zero. There's no reason not to just comply with with the orders of the police officers. Yeah, the thing I observed, I've been looking into, there seems to be a lot of officers being murdered. Um, There were 12 officers run over, eight of them deliberately run over and killed. Um, This is, I'm going to 2022 uh, stats that I was looking at, and I don't know how accurate they are, but there were 107 police officers killed, murdered, and there were no no protests, there were no riots. Al Sharpton didn't say anything. Maxine Waters never came out and said anything. Why do you think that is? Um, I, you know, I, I just think generally in the United States when, uh, you know, there's, there's, uh, there's not the incentive to protest when, uh, bad things happen to government officials. So I think part of the reason for protests against police officers is, is driven by, A, they're police officers, but B, they're under the control of the government. So the protests that are done when bad outcomes happen as a result of, of police officers or that police officers are involved in, um, a police officer is a government official, and it's a tradition in this country to protest against that. Um, when something bad happens to police officers as a result of a private citizen doing something, there's just not the incentive for anybody to protest. Uh, you know, the solution to that problem would be that the uh, law enforcement agencies would find the private individual and charge him with a crime and take care of it. And I, and I think that's also, you know, part of the reason there are the protests, and certainly this is true in Derek's case, is the citizens, in, in, I shouldn't say the citizens in Minneapolis, but the protesters in certain elements in Minneapolis wanted the book thrown at Derek. And in order to make sure the book was thrown at Derek, 
they ride it. So um, I just don't think you see those incentives when a private individual harms a police officer, which which is bad for the for the police officers because they don't think the community has their back anymore. Yeah, it certainly doesn't seem like it. And if if this um, the fact that you're not able to retry his case in a, a safe and sound setting is going to set a standard for future you know I, that's my fear is that what happened to Derek is setting a standard well it, it, it's it's not your fear it's a fear of every police officer in the country I mean you I don't know if you know the statistics right now in Minneapolis uh, but before the George Floyd incident and before COVID, the uh, Minneapolis police force had over 900 officers. They now have about 500. And they're having a, an extremely difficult time recruiting new officers. Because, and primary reason is those officers don't want to find themselves in Derek Chauvin's shoes. They don't want to find themselves in a situation where they're taking a suspect into custody the suspect is on drugs. The suspect's out of control. The police officers have to uh, uh, try to get control of the suspect, and something happens during that where the suspect is harmed or unfortunately dies, and then the officer is looking at a potential uh, criminal charge. And what what really is concerning police officers now is not just a charge of manslaughter, but like in Derek's case, he was charged with second-degree murder. You're looking at a 20- to 40-year sentence, basically the rest of your life in jail. I know, personally, know police officers who, as a result of, of that analysis, have quit. Mm-hmm. You know, these, are indiv- these are individuals who you know, got out of high school or college and made a decision that they wanted to devote their lives to being a police officer. That's what's going to be their career. They spent time, money, effort, uh, you know, getting trained, developed experience and the like, and, you know, worked on the police force for 10 or 15 years. And as a result of this incident, they, they decided it was in their interest to throw all of that away and start a new career. I know one individual who, you know, he, got out and, and is now an airline pilot, but he had to pay money to get trained to work on, you know, to, to become a pilot. And, right. you know, during that training period, he's not bringing any income for his family and the like, but he just concluded it was not worth the risk. His, his wife told him, you know, basically wanted him out. She didn't want, you know, she didn't, you know, she lived with the constant fear that, he could, you know, he could be harmed in the line of duty, which is a, a, a problem that police officers have always had. But then you ramped it up that there's this also this fear that you could be charged with a crime and have your name get splashed across media all over the country, which not only damages you, then, but also damages your family. And, and uh, uh, this officer said you know that's it and 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 his family was completely supportive of it and quite frankly wanted them to do it they wanted them out they said you know we we don't we don't want to have to worry about that every day anymore either so it, it's you know going forward 
it's it, you know what's going to happen to our police forces in in the United States? Are we going to have enough officers patrolling? Uh, number one, and then what kind of officers are we going to get? Yeah, that's scary too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I will tell you in Minneapolis, my you know my offices are are in downtown Minneapolis, and I drive to work and the like. And before before this incident, I would always see police cars. On the way into work, I would just—they'd be out and they'd be on patrol and stuff. You don't see them anymore yeah. in Minneapolis. They're just not around. Um, so, and I, I heard from another individual told me that the the officers that they are being able to recruit—they're—they um, seem to be lowering standards. I heard one recruit was coming in who weighed like two hundred and fifty or three hundred pounds. Oh my god. Uh, yeah, and there's one rumor out there that during training, uh, an officer shot himself in the foot. Uh, you know, I, I, I will tell you, if I get pulled over by a police officer today, I, I, I've, I've been actually doing this since the incident in Dallas, but the police officer comes up to the window of my car, my hands are going to be on the steering wheel. Absolutely. Yeah. And the car's going to be off. And the first thing I'm going to tell the cop is, I, I don't want to get shot. So I want you to know I'm not armed. I'm going to cooperate. I'm going to do whatever you want. You know, you want me to get my wallet. I need to take my right hand and stick it back in my pocket to get the wallet. Is that okay with you? I, I'm going to do everything I can to make that officer comfortable because I don't want to have, I don't want to have the officer um, do something because he's scared of me. I mean, they're, they're human beings as well. I don't, I don't know what kind of day he's had or whether he's been scared in the past. And, I, you know, I just, you know, if he wants to give me a ticket, fine. I just want to get this done and go on my way. Yeah. And as we discussed earlier, unfortunately, there's large segments of our population that that's not, that's not how they're going to react when a police officer uh, stops your car and comes up to your window. And that's not you how know, they're, they're being they're, taught. I mean, right. you know, I've heard people go, oh, well, I have to tell them, have the talk with my child because I don't know why they're special. You know, don't don't talk to them or don't cooperate with them, be, be combative. I'm like, why are you teaching your child to do all the wrong things when they're pulled over by law enforcement or stopped by law enforcement for whatever reason? Yeah, that's... Uh, um that's just horrible. It's not good for the, it's just not good for the country no. at, at all. And you're basically instilling fear. Teaching, yeah. You're instilling fear. You're teaching the child uh, to not have a certain fundamental respect for the, for their government. Mm-hmm. Um, and, 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 and to display that disrespect in a manner um that's uh, dangerous for the officers and, and for the child and and also displayed in a manner that's not consistent with the freedoms we have in this country. I mean, you know, part of the problem with the riots in Minneapolis is there's never a reason to riot in this country. We have a First Amendment free speech guarantee. If you want to protest, you can protest. Your voice can always be heard. Um, I've, I've argued with people about this point, which drives me nuts. I mean, it just reflects how individuals don't understand how na- how our nation works and how a nation should work. But 
they, they actually almost view riots today as a as a valid means of protesting, and it's not. No, it's not. Um, and, and the reason they riot, right, is, um, in fact, one person told me this once, well, the reason we were rioting is because if we exercise our free speech right, people don't listen to us. And I said, no, people are listening to you. They just don't agree with what you're saying. Yeah, there's a difference. So, <laughs> there's a difference. So you have a right to speak, and we can debate points, but that doesn't mean I have to agree with you. And what you're really saying then is if I don't agree with you, then you're going to physically threaten me. That doesn't work. Well, you know, the peaceful things, like the unions went on strike. There were hundreds of people out there they didn't have riots their voices were heard there's right. a good example of you know hey you don't have to torch buildings loot loot department stores and you know have the national guard called in to have your voice heard it's just have you ever has the state of uh, minnesota or our police department ever been sued for not supplying the 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 tools needed to do the job like you know the Narcan, and there's there's this other thing called the Glove. Uh, uh, Compliant Technologies has this this tool that has a glove that would have put George Floyd in compliance right away. Um, I just don't understand oh, Derek I, being I, I sued and nobody's countersuing. Yeah, I have not. Um... I'm not aware of any case with that kind of a fact pattern, and I don't think that kind of a fact pattern would fly. Would work? <laughs> would fly because because the government, the the local city government, made the decision not to allow the officers to use that. By the way, what's this glove technology you're talking about? I'm not aware of this. Oh, it's it's awesome. I had them on a couple of weeks ago. If you go to Compliant Technologies, their website, there's there's a glove that, you know, will put somebody into compliance, like when they're being combative, like the Michael Browns and the George Floyds. All they have to do is put this glove on them and they would become compliant. And I'm not sure all the, all the way it works. I know it's, it's very effective. We had them demonstrate it here in the studio. I can send you the the video. We videoed the whole thing, and Jeff was oh, the founder. Yeah. It's an amazing tool, and every agency should have this tool on their toolkit. Yeah, yeah. At the end, of, at the end of the day, if there's some mechanism that can get a resisting suspect uh, to stop resisting without harming the suspect and harming the officers, sure, it should be used. Why not? Absolutely, and they'll only sell it to law enforcement. And what I really was impressed with is each glove has a, an ID number on it, and you can download when it was used, how long it was used, who it was used on, and that evidence can be used in court. Yeah, what, what, once again, as I was saying earlier, I'm assuming that these gloves are probably, if they're being purchased, they're being purchased by large urban area police departments. Um, 
those large urban area police officers, they've got body cams. It's, it seems like they're, they're, everything they're doing is being tracked and recorded constantly. So the risk, the risk that any large urban area police officer is going to go off the ranch and harm somebody illegally, I just think is so low today. Um, uh, that uh, it, it doesn't make sense why anybody would would resist police officers. You, you would encourage anybody to resist them. It's just nuts. But that's that. I mean, that's interesting. So this, yeah. So in addition, this glove you know works and makes people compliant, but has the ability to record how it's being used and when it's being used and how long it's being used and who used it. And yeah, there's all that evidence. Yeah. So and yeah, it's. So, it's an amazing tool that I think every agency should have, and it's assigned. They don't sell it to the public. It's only sold to a department. The department assigns it to an officer, and that you know they have to be responsible for that glove's whereabouts. <laughs> right. and, you know, it's just an amazing tool that I I think every agency out there should have, whether they're county, state, federal, city. They should all have that. It would save a lot of lives. It would save a lot of law enforcement lives. And, you know, George Floyd would probably be alive today if they allowed him to use Narcan and maybe had this glove. He'd still be a burden to society, but he'd be alive. Absolutely. I mean, if there was anything that could have been done to have gotten George Floyd to settle down before they even attempted to put him in the back of the squad car. Yeah, he would, he would, well, what happened wouldn't have happened. Whether George Floyd would still be alive or not, who who knows? I mean, the... Well, according to, didn't he have like four times the lethal limit for a fentanyl or some drug in his system? Between three and four. 300% to 400% in excess of what is considered lethal. And he took those pills himself. Derek didn't feed him those pills. Yeah, Derek didn't feed him the pills, and he likely, um, you know, based on the body cam videos, he likely threw those pills in his mouth when the police officers came up to him, which is, again, kind of mind-blowing. But apparently... um, You want to get rid of the evidence. Right, which is is mind-blowing to me. I mean that, that's that's incredibly dangerous. Uh, and you would you you would think that even individuals who are having problems with drugs um, are are aware to some extent um, of when they're taking too much. Well, you I'm know. surprised too that his loving family didn't do something to um, help him. Get off the drugs or, you know, if he's on drugs, not allow him to drive around in a two or three ton vehicle. Yeah, well, I don't know if he had any family up here, but, um, you know, at the end of the day, um, I think George Floyd was 42 years old. You know, he was an adult at that point. There's not a lot you can do um, with adults who have drug problems to convince them to, yeah, I mean, at, at some point, Individuals have to realize they've got a problem, and that's the other great thing in this country. There's lots of uh, facilities available and a huge organization of Alcoholics Anonymous to help people with those problems. 
I mean, there's, there's tons of resources for that. What would it take to have this case retried? A miracle? Um, at this point, pretty close to it. Um, Derek would still have rights to file a habeas corpus petition uh, with the federal courts, um, but that would have to be based on new evidence that came out. There are, you know, we're, we're, we get information in all the time from, from people. I, I get a lot of uh, uh, letters from uh, retired doctors who say that, you know, the medical evidence is bad, this and that. And, um, that, quite frankly, I don't think is going to ever go anywhere. At the end of the day, in a, in a trial, there was a dispute about George Floyd's cause of death, and you had uh, different medical opinions on that. And so I don't think that that's going to go anywhere. Um, what would be more interesting is we did raise a, an issue that came up after the trial that at least one of the jurors uh, had participated in uh, George Floyd protests. He was after on stage. I saw him. Yeah. And um, so after the trial was over, Derek's trial counsel made a motion to uh, for the court to have a hearing and to call in to testify this juror to find out exactly everything this juror had done and find out whether the juror had falsely answered questions during, during jury voir dire, because if the juror did, um, that would be automatic grounds for a retrial. Um, Cause you know, Derek has to be convicted by every juror. And if you have a juror on the jury panel who is biased and who was asked questions during jury voir dire, uh, that would have revealed that bias, and the juror falsely answered those questions. That's that's grounds for an automatic retrial. He bragged about um, it on TV. Yeah, yeah, he did. And we brought all that, you know, all that information was brought out to the trial court. We brought all that information out on appeal. That was one of the grounds on which we, um, obviously, it's one of the grounds on which we appealed to the Minnesota Court of Appeals. But it was also part of our petition for review to the Minnesota Supreme Court and the U.S. Supreme Court, um, and they rejected it. But, you know, if other information should turn up um, that we don't know about right now, you know, if there are other protests the individual participated on or if he was on social media that showed that uh, he had a bias that, we're, you know, we're not aware of right now and that gets sent to us, uh, later, that would be grounds to file a habeas corpus petition in federal court to have to have Derek retried. Um, but yeah, it's it's going to be difficult at this point. Well, that photo you were referring to from the training manual, we're going to put it on our podcast page so people can see, you know, what they saw during that the news spiels for weeks is exactly what Derek did from the training manual, and it was his shoulder, not his neck. And I thank you so much for coming on the show and talking to us about this and tell Derek's mom, I'm sorry. I'm sorry what happened here. And until next week, Happy New Year's. Stay safe. We'll talk to you then.